Hey everyone, I'm Brandon Chu and welcome to the Black Box of Product Management. Today, I am very privileged to be joined by a special guest, Craig Miller, the former CPO of Shopify and a company legend who spent the last nine years of his career building the largest technology company in Canadian history. Craig was the first uh, marketer at Shopify, started the Toronto office, and then became the company's CMO and eventually CPO. During his tenure, Shopify's valuation grew from just under 100 million to over 130 billion, and the team grew from 100 to over 10,000. So to suffice it to say, Craig has seen hyperscale and has been through quite a lot. Uh, Craig, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Cool. So you know, I'd like to cover a bunch today. Uh, it's going to be a pretty open conversation. I'd love to touch on your childhood to early career, uh, of course, Shopify, uh, and also talk about you know what's next for you and some of the principles that you've developed throughout your life and career. But first, I actually wanted to start uh, at LinkedIn, of all places. And <laughs> because there you have uh, the most vague experience listed at the start of your career. It's an eight year period that is simply titled owner with no other <laughs> context. So Craig, what were you the owner of? <laughs> yeah. Uh, funny. I, I completely forgot about that. Um, I, I guess if we rewind back to like the late nineties, early two thousands, uh, I started going to school at McGill, um, and, you know, going to university costs a lot of money. My parents basically said, Hey, go figure it out yourself. And so I, I had saved a little bit of money from my own stuff that I'd done before, but I, I randomly came into this world of, uh, affiliate marketing and SEO back when, uh, SEO, I don't think the acronym even existed. And affiliate marketing was super nascent. Um, and I, I kind of, I, I didn't even realize I was running my own business at first, to be honest. I would set up these GeoCities websites with a few affiliate links and stick the same words over and over again. And suddenly the search engines of the time would show my sites at the top and I'd get these checks in the mail. And it was the craziest experience. You know, I'd be studying like crazy because it's a super hard degree. And I'd come home from school and I'd open up my mailbox and it'd be overflowing with checks uh, from random companies. Uh, selling the most random of things, magazine subscriptions, hockey jerseys, uh, ink cartridges, like you name it. I kind of sold it online. And uh, like, I didn't even realize it was a business until I had to file my taxes at the end of the first year. And it was wow. just, it was surreal. Um, but the thing was like, I, I had very little business knowledge or sense or acumen. I just kind of discovered this, this unique ability that I had at the time. And it was almost a distraction from my actual studies. I, I was studying electrical engineering. I wanted to learn about circuits and build robots and, you know, computers. That's what I thought I was going to do. Uh, but uh, the strange thing is over four years, it, it, I guess the reality is um, that actual kind of side hustle, I guess, if you'll call it, uh, became kind of the more meaningful thing I learned in university and the actual electrical stuff that all kind of went out my brain the moment I graduated. And so, yeah, I, I ran this business for years. I kept getting checks in the mail. Uh, eventually, I, I sort of realized I couldn't scale it to the next level because it never worked anywhere. And I kind of felt that, as weird as it sounds, you know, I, I wasn't ready to hire people when I had never been managed myself. And so I thought, hey, maybe I should go out and kind of discover how businesses work before I go back and, and kind of reenter the entrepreneurial world. What, uh, okay, so, you know, you built this business. 
you're thinking about scaling it, but then you realize you never really built a business or worked or you built a business, but you haven't worked for a larger company or managed folks or whatnot. Uh, so where'd you end up next? There's a site called Kijiji, which had just launched in, in Canada. Um, and they were looking for someone to be a developer and a business analyst. And I had no idea what a business analyst was, but I figured I could be a developer. And so I sent in my resume and then I was like, what is this Kijiji thing? Went to their site. There was some rinky dink, bizarre looking website. Like it was just very strange. And at the top, it said, we're having a community get together at a bar called Saint-Sulpice in Montreal. And if you know Montreal well, you know Saint-Sulpice because it's got the best patio in the city. And so I thought, what the hell, I'll go to this community get together and, and see what's going on. So I went there and was about to leave because like nothing was going on. There was, there was no community get together. And eventually I saw two guys huddled in the corner with a sign above them that said Kijiji. So I, I walked over, introduced myself and said, hey, is this, you know, where, where are all the people? And this, this sort of sheepishly admitted, hey, you know, the site just launched, but like, hey, it's great that you're here. Like, what do you think of the site? And I was like, I've never used the site. I was just applying for a job. And they said, oh, shit. Okay. Well, and so that, so then we ended up talking about the job. And that was my interview with two thirds of the team. Um, <laughs> the next week, I moved to Toronto. And or next week, I interviewed in Toronto. And the week after that, I moved to Toronto. And, and so, yeah, I, I started there as a developer and business analyst. A business analyst I discovered was someone that put stuff in Excel, which was pretty easy to do. And developer, they wanted me to build some, some stuff for them. Um, and the team at the time, there were three people. There was a, it was a, it was a group of three people within eBay that were kind of uh, responsible for this in Canada. And then there's a team in San Jose, about 10 people that actually wrote the software. And uh, so my job was to write some of the software in Canada and also be the business analyst. Uh, and then relatively quickly, they said, hey, instead of being a developer and business analyst, you know that thing you did kind of at university on the side to just make some money? How about you do that for Kijiji? And so, all right. What That's funny. And so, yeah, I, I focused on marketing for the first, I want to say, three or four years. Took the site from basically no traffic to about, I want to say, 10 million Canadians use the site each month, um, which at the time was about 50% of online Canadians. Eventually ran the support team, ran the um, uh, analytics team, ended up kind of running a, a little bit of everything. Uh, and probably the one that I liked the most was the product team. And uh, the product team initially was, hey, me having an idea and then writing the code myself. So I kind of did the full, the full stack from, you know, what to do to actually doing the work. Uh, and then eventually I worked with the team that was in San Jose that actually, you know, there were more seasoned developers. And I would kind of write the specs and tell them, hey, here's... Here's what I'd love for you to 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 kind of build and add next. You know, you sort of just glossed over, but you became you you ended up running marketing there. Like you're an electrical engineer. <laughs> How did you end up running marketing? Did you ever feel imposter syndrome along the way? What did you even What do you even think marketing is fundamentally? <laughs> yeah, I, I you know, uh, of course, the irony is is you know after Kijiji again, I. I joined Shopify and again, I'm doing marketing. And in all cases, I keep telling people I'm not a marketer. I've like, I, I know <laughs> nothing about marketing. I've never taken a course in marketing in my life. I've never read a book in marketing in my life. I am not a marketer. Um, it, it was actually my, uh, my first manager at Kijiji, uh, who's now a very good friend, um, who rightly kind of identified something about me uh, during my time there. And, uh, you know, she said, Craig, you're a problem solver. And I think that was, that was the moment it kind of clicked for me in that most startups. And again, Kijiji, when I joined Shopify, when I joined, 
the problem that they had is someone had written some software, but no one was using it. And what's the point of having great software or a great product if no one's using it? And so the startup problem is getting people to use it, you know, in, in, in the vast majority of cases. And so that's, that's the problem that I, I solved. And then, you know, once people are using it, then it's, it's actually switches over and becomes much more of a product problem, which is, you know, where do you take the software? Cause you can take it a million different ways. Um, so, so I think I'm more of a problem solver. And in terms of marketing, I, I never really even thought of it as being marketing. I thought it was just more like a game where I've got a, a, a number every week that I try and make that number go up. And there's certain tactics that I know, like SEO and AdWords, and there's tricks and, and, and techniques and tools that you can use and, and, and figure out. And you just try and find a way to make those numbers go up each week. Got it. Uh, so that brings us then to to Shopify. And this like this could be a series of you know 20 episodes. Uh, <laughs> but I think <laughs> You know, in your nine years there, you saw a lot of versions of Shopify. You saw a lot of um, different evolutions of its culture. So why don't you kind of quickly take us through like how you, how you met the founders and joined the company. I had got an email from a recruiter named Doug uh, on LinkedIn of all places saying, hey, what do you think about Shopify? I thought he was talking about Spotify. I had no idea what was going on uh, at the time. Like it was, you know, Shopify was a very small company. I think it had raised its Series A. Um, uh, and you know, as a uh, side note for for listeners, that that is how I often measured uh, how big Shopify was becoming. The amount of times that people would call it Spotify, yeah. and it'd probably be like ninety percent of the time when I started, they would call it Spotify. Like in, even in interviews with Shopify, and you know, yeah. now it's like very rare that it happens. But you know. yeah, yeah. I, I actually remember. I, I remember telling people I was going to Jaded Pixel Technology because it just sounded simpler. And that was actually the the, the formal uh, corporate name for Shopify. Shopify was the product, Jaded Pixel was the company. Um, and yeah, I, I got this interview, this 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 note from Doug. Uh, I talked to him and eventually, Doug's a fairly persuasive person. He got me to go to Ottawa to to meet with the team. And you know, to be honest, my thought process at the time was worst case scenario, I can see my parents who lived in Ottawa and they, you know, Shopify paid for a free flight. Um, and I met the team and I was really like, it, it was a very young team, uh, and very optimistic. And I just loved the energy of the office. Everyone felt like, you know, the product was right. Uh, you know, the people like loved this company inside and out, uh, Toby and Harley, I spent a bunch of time with them and I just thought they were just the most like fantastic humans. I mean, completely different. Toby was super cerebral. Harley was bouncing off the walls with energy. And I just, I, I loved the people. Um, and I thought, hey, and then when I went home and I did a little bit more research, I realized that the product was was good, just no one was using it. And the reason no one was using it is because you couldn't find it. Like if you went on Google and searched for like sell online, you know, online store creator, shopping cart software, it, it was nowhere to be found. And so I thought, shit, this is, this, this sounds fairly easy. Um, the problem was at the time uh, they wanted me to move to Ottawa. And so I said, I've ultimately said no to the, the, the job, uh, to which a couple of weeks later, Harley calls me up and said, okay, maybe we can make this Toronto thing, thing work. And yeah, the rest, the rest ended up being, being history. But for, for listeners, uh, Craig wrote a post of 
how that went down. So basically when he said no, uh, he, he wrote every, he wrote Toby and Harley a note uh, with some, some great advice from all the things that he had learned about basically how to get Shopify more noticed. And uh, it's a really great read. So, you know, for, for readers, I'll, I'll link it in the comments. Uh, yeah, so 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 I, I ended up uh, initially it was spend a lot of time in Ottawa and then come back and work for my my side uh, my spare bedroom um, and and so I did that for maybe two months and then I got the ability to have a small office and to hire someone and so I brought in Bruno who I had worked with at Kijiji um, I had hired him to do marketing and he was just amazing uh, and then we set up the small office uh, in a co working space. And like, just to give you a sense of like how bad it was, like we were right next to the bathroom and the kitchen. And whenever someone used the microwave in the kitchen, like the internet stopped working. <laughs> and this is like an era before hangouts. Like I was trying to use Skype, but I was like literally the only person in the company, me and Bruno eventually, um, were the only ones that weren't there. Like the entire company was physical in person. Like everyone was in Ottawa. And I was just this random person trying to dial in, trying to connect, trying to understand what was <laughs> going on. And, and it's funny. It, being slightly out of sight and slightly out of mind, I could just try and run experiments and do things very differently than uh, had I been there. And, and, and I think, you know, Shopify and, and all companies early on have to be very opinionated because you have no idea if your thing's going to work. So you need to have some strong opinion on like what you're going to do, why you're going to win, you know, the best way to write software, whatever it is. Like you just need to have that strong opinion. And so there's a very opinionated culture in Shopify early on. And frankly, like I probably did a lot of things that probably would have gone against those opinions, but because I was able to do them, you know, removed from the, the office in Ottawa, I had a lot more flexibility because no one really noticed what I, what I was doing. And of course, once they're successful, it's, it's a lot harder to argue with something versus early on when you're like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, uh, create a blog that's going to like publish articles about e-commerce every day and this and that. And someone like, ah, I don't know if that feels right. Maybe you should do this other thing. I just did it. And then, you know, later on, you know, dealt with the consequences. Was it experiment for experiment's sake? Like you're trying to challenge your own assumption or did you have an intuition actually that people did want it? I, I think I, I've always recognized that like I'm, I'm not the smartest person. And so I'm going to have some opinions and thoughts and ideas. And I'm actually super excited when I learn that I'm wrong. So why don't you, uh, why don't you talk about your, your fame BHAG? So trace, trace, you know, from where we are in Shopify's history to, to basically the IPO. So it, when I joined the company, I think the 2011, the end of the year number was, I'm going to double check this because there, there probably are some numbers online that can, can verify this, but I think we ended the year with about 15,000 customers. So 15,000 businesses use Shopify. And, and, and again, joining the team, my job was, was marketing um, and marketing I didn't quite know what it meant. And frankly, when I asked around, none of the execs really knew what it meant either. They were just told as they raised their uh, series B that they needed to have someone running marketing. And so once I got to know the business, I realized the business was basically like the money in the business, the, the revenue that it produced was a factor of how many people subscribe to the platform. So if I wanted to make this business go up and to the right, I just needed more people on the platform. And so I realized marketing is equal to growth. And so I just said to my team, um, you know, that I was starting to assemble, Hey, let's make that 15,000 customers. Let's, let's double it. And then I said, and then let's double it again. And then let's double it again. 
And, you know, once you do a few of those doubles, you get to a point where, hey, this company could actually go public. And at the time, that sounded like laughable. For, for American or global listeners, like Canada had a pretty big falling in Blackberries, uh, Blackberry basically going under roughly, roughly so. Uh, post uh, the financial crisis and and with the introduction of the iPhone. And there was sort of like a, a dark ages, I guess, in Canadian tech. So it was, uh, you know, it is a story of Shopify as well, which is that everyone is discounting the even possibility that something big could be built here. I had this, this hunch that uh, at least the early parts should be easy enough because it was good software. People just weren't, uh, you know, weren't aware of it. So I felt the first one or two years should probably be easy. Uh, and so you asked earlier about the, kind of the, the, the phases of Shopify. Um, you know, the first uh, little while while I was there, it, it was fairly easy work for me, um, which was get people to that were looking for Shopify to find Shopify. And, uh, and so that was just, you know, show up for every sort of thing that people are looking for. And it, it, any way that someone's thinking about e-commerce or selling on the internet, like Shopify should be the number one choice and it, it should be there and it should be number one, number two, number three, it should be the only thing people are talking about. And so once at some point you start saturating that, then it really becomes a question of how do you get people to start thinking about Shopify? And that's, that was a real kind of transformation. And it wasn't like one day that happened. It was more of a gradual thing, but that became from like serving a market to creating a market, which is when we started like educating people that they too could be an entrepreneur. They like, it's not that hard. This was accessible and available and easy and, and, and um, within their reach. And that was, that was when we started investing in different types of content. We did podcasts back again in, in like 2015, which no one was doing, like no companies were doing podcasts at the time. We wrote books. You could buy, buy our book on Amazon. Um, you know, we created all this content out there to try and encourage people to, to do that. Um, Build a business so competition. Those are kind of my, what's that? Yeah, build a business. Yeah, build a business competition. Another great example. And so I think those are the, my two real phases of, it, it, like if, if I divide my time in Shopify, it would probably be, you know, marketing was the first half, product was the second half. Um, and in, in marketing, the first half was really just like show up when people are looking for you. And the second half was like make people look for you, um, which is a hell of a lot harder, um, but it's also a hell of a lot more rewarding. Uh, because eventually you have people that say, you know, this company changed my life. Not only did you provide the tool, but you provided the education. Like you taught me that I could do this, um, which was super, super fulfilling for me. You know, one of my earliest memories of you, Craig, actually, that really stuck with me and kind of uh, uh, proved to me that you're onto something is uh, when you described or were asked in our AMA sort of what what is our market size? And... <laughs> And you answered it really eloquently um, where you basically said, you made an analogy to Nike, which is a company that we uh, really respect within the company. And you said, you know, Nike was probably their early market was for athletes, but then they basically told everyone or showed everyone that if you have a body, you can be an athlete. So therefore their market is everyone. And you use that uh, as, a, as a metaphor or analogy to, to, for Shopify. And it was that uh, anyone with ambition can be an entrepreneur. And yeah. who doesn't have some ambition in their life, no matter how small, right? And I think that that was always something really powerful 
uh, for everyone in the company to understand sort of what also the product needed to do, which was to nurture a, a, a nucleus of ambition within a potential entrepreneur and show them, you know, step-by-step step sort of like that it becomes more and more possible. It, it, it's funny you mentioned that. I remember one of the thoughts that spurred that too. I remember going on Google images and typing the word entrepreneur and basically what showed up was like Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. And it was like, frankly, it was like a lot of white tech people. And I was like, man, that word has escaped us. Uh, like it, it, the idea of starting your own business now seems so unobtainable for most people, unless you happen to have like, you know, a father that gets you into Harvard. And I, I, I remember talking to some people and they kind of said, Hey, the word entrepreneur is, is, is like, don't use it because it's, it's, it's too far gone. And, and I didn't, I didn't like that. I, maybe I just, I like the challenge of, of saying, Hey, that this is something that should be for, for everyone. And, and so I, I think, you know, when I switch over and talk about product, that was really my big focus on product was to like make Shopify much more approachable and usable by more people. Actually, correct, product correct. that I encountered. Before yep. you get into that, just yep. just because I kicked it off with asking about your BHAG, what was what was the BHAG? I said, uh, I think it was, I said, 2015, we should be able to do, uh, and, and, and I said, hey, this is, should be our big, hairy, audacious goal. We should be able to have an IPO and the company should be worth a billion dollars. And at the time, I just like, it, it was, I, I wrote BHAG, but it was frankly like a silly thing just to get people excited. But the reality was in 2015, when we went public, we were valued at, at two times the mm -hmm. BHAG. So even I, with my like crazy imagination saying, imagine this company would be worth a billion dollars. I was off by a factor of two. And of course the idea of Shopify being worth $2 billion today is equally laughable. And this is actually just for listeners, this is exactly about the time that I joined. So I think I joined like two weeks after the IPO. And uh, this is where you hadn't officially done it yet, but this is where you start to transition into more, more product uh, leadership role. And also when the product management team at Shopify started to, you know, first seed itself and then, and then grow. Yeah. So, so Shopify always had this weird, at least during my tenure, uh, relationship with product. Um, when I first joined, Toby basically showed me, he had like, I think it was six post-it notes on his wall in a pyramid. Um, and he said, that's the roadmap. I was like, okay, cool. It sounded good enough. And like, frankly, when I, when I joined during those first formidable years for me, the entire company was working on this giant technology rewrite um, using some new framework they created called Batman. So frankly, like nothing was coming out for consumer, like for users anyways. Uh, it was all being kind of rewritten under the hood. Uh, so there wasn't really a lot of product stuff that was going on anyways, other than just the technology rewrite. Um, but, but later on, once that had kind of got out, um, Shopify experimented with different forms of what product could be. Uh, they had someone that sort of ran uh, product management, not product. So more the discipline of it for a brief while. Um, they had some product management. Wait, well, can you, can, for, for, for listeners, like when you say product, not product management or vice versa, like what is the difference in your mind? Maybe the, the best way to put it is like, um, at least it was my experience that, that Toby... Toby's love for the product was almost like a, a, a father's love for a child or, or a parent's love. I, I can only speak as a father. And he really had strong opinions on it and he really, really cared about it. And he did not want to give that up. 
Um, and so at some point he needed some help with just kind of like management, like the like, you know, cue of what's being, what's happening. But he still really wanted to call the shots on where he wanted to take things. And it was really only, you know, uh, sort of, I, I guess a little bit after you had, uh, you had joined that he kind of gave me the reins and said, you know, you take care of the product as in figure out where this needs to go, not simply the execution of his kind of grand, grand strategy. And I think that was, that was a big step for him. Um, but I think part of it was, you know, the transition to becoming a public company CEO, it, it's very hard to, to do, to be a CEO and it's equally hard to be a CEO and do like, you know, a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and Toby was very hands-on in all sorts of different aspects of the company. And so for me, the, um, you know, this was him just giving me this huge vote of confidence, which, which I absolutely loved, but it wasn't, it wasn't out of nowhere. Um, for years, he and I had always talked about the vision of the company, um, sort of how product could evolve. I had always bugged him by like sneaking in little things into Shopify here or there that he didn't, you know, initially he wasn't too into, but then later on, he kind of grew incredibly fond of. And, uh, and so I think he had a lot of respect that like, uh, you know, for, for my thinking. And I think he also knew that I cared about it deeply. And, and so, yeah, he made that, that transition uh, at that point. And then for me, the, the big question became, okay, where do we take this, this, this product? Um, and who are the people that are going to take it there? And I think that's, that was right around the time I was fortunate enough to, to interview you. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I remember, I remember when you interviewed me, you know, the, I think the thing that got you to like me was, uh, and I really understand it now was I was doing my own similar sort of, you know, economic hacking by uh, selling stuff on Amazon. And, uh, you know, what I would do is I would take bestsellers on amazon.com and then arbitrage that into the Canadian Amazon domain, because there's always a lag basically like it's trending in the U S then there's some time period where, you could arbitrage that and bring and, you know, find the manufacturer and bring that listing to Canada and reap it. And I think like, uh, I distinctly remember, like we had a good conversation, but like, I think that was the thing that you liked the most. Cause it, uh, and then now I really understand, you know, with, with your history. Um, yeah. I, I, I believe you were the, the, the number one selfie stick seller on Amazon in Canada. And, and you and I both play, uh, play poker. And, and I think interviewing is often, this sounds a little bit bizarre, but kind of like poker where you're just kind of looking for tells and you're looking for some like insight or some, some sense that like there's something unique and special about this person. And, and and for me, I think that like what your side thing really stood out and, you know, everyone that I I ended up hiring over years always had different reasons. Um, But, but I think it was always just kind of looking for something that just, just shows you kind of, what gets them excited, what gets them ticking um, and, and shows that they're kind of like different than the average person. Cause you didn't need to do that. Like if I remember correctly, you had a full time job at a very good company. You just did this cause there was something inside you that just wanted more. And, uh, and I, I love that. I love that. You know, while we're talking about interviews, like, and, and, and really what, how you just described the, the kind of insight you're looking for in, in people you interview, what, what's your favorite, what's your favorite question? Uh, I actually don't have any, like, I don't have like that one question that I ask people. I, I basically break down the interview into kind of three components. The first one is like, 
uh, we go and talk about something in their past and like, I'll look at their resume beforehand and I'll find like one line on the resume and we'll talk about that, like that one thing for 20 minutes. And it, it sometimes drives people nuts because, you know, they've prepared their whole life story. They want to tell you about, you know, when I was a kid, I did this and then I did that. I'm like, I don't care. It said here you improved <laughs> conversion rate by 10%. Okay. So let, let, let's talk about that. And so we end up talking about that for just such a length. And then you start realizing, was it them that decided to do it? Or was it their boss that told them to do it? What techniques, what tools are these? Why did they do it? Well, how did that, you know, did that last? It was a temporary, you know, why did they think that was, you just go so deep on that. And, and it, it, you really get a good sense of the person on the details, not on the general things. And the general things just get so like polished and, and rehearsed. And frankly, like, people end up interviewing five different, getting interviewed by five different people. If they tell the same story five different times, it's, it's super boring when we all compare notes. So oftentimes I'll, I'll be like, I know nothing about what they did in the last like five companies, even what they did this company. I just know this one detail <laughs> really, really well. And that's the thing that, that, that got me super excited. And so, yeah, I'll spend a lot of time on that. Then I'll spend a lot of time saying like, what do we need to do with our product? And, uh, and, and, again, like this ends up being kind of simple if they say I've never signed up or never used it because then there, there goes the interview because I have nothing to talk about. But I love to just kind of probe them and, and, and see where the thinky is, what they tried, what they think is good, what they think is bad, and just kind of go, go deep on that. And frankly, like if you have an interview with me and you haven't done enough research to know like the current state of things, if it's, not, if it's good, if it's not good, like you should have a sense of what your world would look like. Uh, and so for me, that's really getting a sense of that. And then the last thing is just like opening up for questions. Cause I, I feel the interview process is always kind of unidirectional. It feels like I'm in a position of power and I'm interviewing you and, and like you desperately want this job. And I'm just like, you know, it's, it's me to give or not to give. And I really want to make sure that it's like a two way street because like, if this is like Shopify was, uh, when I was there, a very bizarre and unique culture. And I didn't want people joining the company just cause like the stock was doing well. I wanted people to like join the company and, and like, I wanted them to feel like this is the right place for them, you know, regardless of all the other stuff. And so I really wanted uh, like them to make that decision. So Craig, there are very few people on earth who have been in an exec role in product um, as a CPO of a company that has uh, both reached this size, but then also been on that journey from when it was smaller. So, you know, I want to, touch on a few things. Um, one, I want to talk more deeply about what product was and became at Shopify. And we can break that down to maybe like some, some high level views of what the craft uh, is in your mind. And then also I'd love to go down to the really low level too, to some examples or memories you have of like really tough product decisions that you made during your tenure. And, and then uh, also would love to touch on, you know, from a personal standpoint, what it felt like to be an exec at uh, a unicorn, now centicorn <laughs> tech company and, you know, what the demands of that are, because I think a lot of people would be really interested. So, so why don't we start with like, you know, what, what, what was product management in your mind, the function, what did we end up doing? And then maybe some, some stories or examples would be great. Yeah, so the um, the product team, by and large, was responsible for the thing that all of our merchants spent their entire day in, what they log into first thing in the morning and what they end the day off. And 
so sort of the, the, the challenge of that was figuring out what things to build, what things not to build, um, um, uh, in which order to do them in. And uh, again, it sounds like I'm, I'm greatly trivializing it by putting it at that high level, but that's fundamentally what our group had to do. And I think the thing that was tricky is to a certain degree as a product manager, you don't really have any very tangible things to show at the end of the day. You know, engineers kind of write code, designers, you know, have, have pixels as output. And product managers kind of shepherd the team and try and like make sure they actually do the thing and, and get the thing out there. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a nebulous thing because you don't really um, have something to show at the end of the day, except for once it all comes together, you know, is it, is it a world leading product? Is it something that accomplishes the goal and surpasses expectations or, or, or does it not? And so I think for me, the challenge is always, can I find some people that are able to inspire the team, can figure out what the problem is to be solved, to build it in the right way, um, to get it out as fast as possible, to think of all the different ways in which it can be done, um, to make sure that people use it. You know, the, the list goes on and, and just finding those, those incredible people to do that. And at least in, in my case, my strange... Um, I guess, source of, of incredible talent was often founders. And I think the reason I, and, and I'm speaking, you know, ultimately my team were the directors of product in the company, the VPs of product in the company. And a lot of those people were used to making, you know, very big decisions and leading very large teams. And the founders of companies that we either acquired or, you know, had, had struggled in the past doing, um, you know, at a previous company, those founders were often the right people to kind of, lead us forward. And so that, that ended up being kind of the makeup of most of my team. Yeah. That, that was actually a really amazing evolution of Shopify where, you know, I don't know the exact ratios today, but a high percentage of PMs at Shopify and those that still are and, and made it through to the leadership levels, they, they were ex founders. Like we, we joke, but it was totally true that like our gold mine was finding failed founders basically. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm in that bucket too. And, uh, it was just people that, you know, had been through that experience, had to have the weight of everything on them at some point and kind of had a chip on their shoulder too, to both prove themselves uh, uh, to, to themselves. And I think that that, you know, ended up being an amazing source of talent. Um, you, you talked, you know, the way you answered that question about what it is that we ended up building, you immediately went to finding people. And, you know, so I, I want to, double click on that a little bit, because I think especially you were never the type to, to kind of write out a 10 page roadmap for the, a thousand people to execute. You really did empower your leaders to come up with the product strategy. Um, what would like talk us through your, your strategy your people management strategy or leadership strategy around like how you both managed you know, I assume Toby having very strong opinions and the board and your peers at the C-level on what we're building, but then giving agency to your team. Like that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. Uh, but, you know, I think from my experience, you did it incredibly and I would love to, for you to share some thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that was, that was tricky. As a person, I am uh, incredibly opinionated on building products. Um, you know, going back to, to my early days when I actually was both the product manager as well as the developer that built it, as well as the designer, as well as basically everything. 
you know, I had full control and I could build and I didn't have to, you know, convince other people I could just do, do what I wanted. And, and I think that's something that's always stuck with me. I have very strong opinions, but ultimately I know that I, I'm working with really smart people. I spend so much time hiring and, and trying to partner with really smart people that if I come in kind of being a dictator and saying, do it this way, do it that way, then I really don't get much out of anyone. Um, and so I think for me, it was always important to kind of challenge this, challenge people, um, try and make sure they're bringing their A game, but at the same time, recognize that I have biases. I'm not perfect. You know, I, I have strong opinions, but that might be subjective. You know, I might like green, others like blue, and it doesn't, one is not necessarily better than the other. And so for me, I always try to make sure that at least at the highest level, we were all aligned on the right goal. And then the execution ended up being kind of a little bit more up to them. And, and, and this, I think for me, started in the earliest phases when I, when I started working as a individual contributor, product manager, working with engineers, where I would literally tell them how to write the code. And it drove them absolutely bonkers. They're like, stop telling me how to do my job. Like I, I, I've been writing code for years and I'd be saying, no, no, this is exactly how to implement the thing. And I realized like I was not going to get very far if I tell everyone how to do their job. Uh, and, and so for me, a lot of it ended up always becoming about scale. And I knew the best way to scale was to make sure that people were, you know, at the high level, very connected. And, uh, you know, everyone was on the same page in terms of like the vision, the, the highest level aspects of the roadmap but then giving people a lot of agency. And I think what that ended up doing is, is encouraging the right people to really step up and to just to, 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 to shine. Um, and, and I don't think you would have got that if you were just telling people build it exactly this way. Time. Yeah. Time. I think that, you know, that upon reflection, you know, of the time I'd been here was one of your superpowers was that you gave people the space, but you never chose who would take it. Uh, so, you know, PMs would, mm-hmm. and, I'm not going to name them all, but in my mind, I think I'm sure you have some in yours of just like people that just stepped up, took that initiative and recognized that it was a place that, or Shopify and the product team was a culture that wanted people to, to want to take risk and be, and be leaders, but it has to come from within. And I think one thing you were amazing at was when those people do, did that, they, you really amplified, um, right. And I think that that uh, was mm-hmm. A very, like, I found that to be a very amazing, you know, environment to work in, but also I can imagine from your perspective, it is, it is difficult because you're getting pressure to ship. And so you want to give your team space. You want to let them fail. Like when, what was your mental model for when you had to step in to make sure the, this exact thing was shipped versus, you know, give air cover to your team so that they can continue to explore and potentially build the right or wrong thing? Like, how did you manage that tension? Uh, I, I remember about two years ago, um, one of our mutual friends asked me what the hardest thing about being an exec was. And I reflected on it for maybe a minute or so. And then I told him, uh, it was smiling, <laughs> which sounds a little bit bizarre, I guess, even now, as I said out loud. Um, but you'll be dealing with so many different pressures and struggles, um, from teams, um, you know, conflict. Um, and you know, when you enter that meeting, none of, none of that should matter. You got to put on those, you know, the blinders that horses do and just kind of focus on the team and make sure they're doing what they do best. 
And it's, it's insanely hard. You know, we're all humans. Sometimes you wake up on the wrong, wrong side of the bed. You, someone cuts you off and as you're driving and it puts you in a bad mood or whatever. And I think you've got to somehow or other compartmentalize so many different things and, you know, be your best. And teams, as weird as it sounds, like really thrive off of your energy. And so I always, you know, when I enter a room, I try and be positive. I try and show my excitement for the project they were working on. I, I make sure I connected with all the PMs. And, you know, I think doing so kind of gave everyone a bit of, I don't know, a mental safe space that they could do their best work and not have to worry that someone was coming in and immediately judging them, um, that they felt pressured or, or anything. You know, I am inherently a pretty quiet person and I know that that, and, and also, you know, I'm six feet five. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes just look off into the distance and, and think about things, which is actually quite intimidating to a lot of people. You know, even as a kid, I knew people were intimidated by me. And so I, I, I've gone out of my way in life to try and, I don't know, de-intimidate myself. I don't know if that's a word. Um, but I really wanted to encourage and, and, and get the best out of everyone. Uh, and, and so, you know, creating that environment, creating that culture was always super, super important. And it's tricky when, like you said, there's, there's you know, timeframe constraints and there's competing uh, interests and there's, you know, I'm getting feedback from one person saying this, this team's failing and that team's saying that's that other thing. And, and, you know, trying to enter that and try and make sure everyone's in a good spot and still pushing things forward. It's tricky. And, and frankly, it's also very lonely. Uh, as an exec, you really have very few people you can talk to. I, I, I remember one of my kind of unofficial jobs, or at least I, I tried to make it my job, was to be a counsel for for Toby, um, the CEO, because I knew, hey, if my job was hard and, and daunting and trying and, and, you know, lonely, I could only imagine how bad it would be for him. So, you know, most of my one-on-ones weren't very structured with me giving product updates. It was more, hey, you know, let's, let's just talk about how things are going, you know? Um, totally. Yeah, I think people have, like, I think people have, like, the the sort of utopian mental model of what it means to be like an exec, like you're pontificating about strategy all day and staring at a window <laughs> and saying like, this is where we'll go. And I think the reality is that's a constant background process for you, but more likely it's 30 minute chunks. The first 30 minutes is like, you might have to let some people go that have been at the company for five years. The next 30 minutes is you're thinking about acquiring a company X. The next 30 minutes is, actually doing the board report and then the investor call. And then you have this random one-on-one -on -one with a PM that uh, has been trying to get on your schedule for six months just to say hi and meet Craig Miller. And that's where you need that smile. Right. And I think yeah. like that, that's the reality I think of the job that is extremely taxing. Um, uh, and, and I think a lot of people don't, don't recognize, you know, the, the grind of that and, and how lonely it yeah. is. So. It, it's, it, it, it's, um, I think it's a pretty well-established fact that most execs end up lasting, you know, on order of, I think it's plus or minus, uh, six months to three years. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's rare for people to stick around a company for a long period of time. It's also rare, I think, in my case, to have been at a company that was so small and also so so large. Um, but but I, again, I think the um, the, the struggles are, are real. Um, I often 
kind of mentally thought that I was like those people you'd see in the old black and white clips that were just spinning plates on, you know, on those sticks. And they're just like, one's starting to wobble. You run over and you, <laughs> yep. you start spinning that one again. And one's starting to wobble. And, you know, that extended beyond product to the company, you know, at some point, Hey, if there's an issue with a team that has nothing to do with me, but somehow or other I find out about it, I'm going to try and go and help that. And it extends beyond the company to like, you know, the Shopify as a, as a ecosystem. So if there's partners or stores that are struggling, I'm going to go try and help them. And it goes on to like the employees' personal lives where, Hey, if, if there's something going on there, I, I try and help. And it goes on to my own personal life where sometimes I felt like, geez, I'm not really giving the proper attention I should be to my family. And it's, it's, it's hard. Cause you're just, you know, something's constantly failing. You're just chasing after it and trying to, trying to push some, some effort back in there and then realizing, Oh, as you put more effort into your family, then work starts to struggle. So you go back or run over there and then try and help there. And it's, it's, it feels like it's a losing game for, for a very long time. Is that also how you maybe that spinning, balancing the plates kind of mental model? Is that how you kind of describe how scale was too? It's like you're doing two plates and then just kept, and by the end you're doing 30 <laughs> plates. Uh, like how did your role, I think we're talking a lot about sort of towards the end of like, you know, yeah. at maximum scale, but earlier on, say 2015, was it different than when you left? So absolutely the, the job changed drastically over time, but it's almost like I didn't notice because I was just, you know, hey, I was that that frog in boiling water. It was just getting hotter and hotter, and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't paying attention. And and in retrospect, if if someone told me today, hey, would you join a ten thousand person company as chief product officer? That sounds intimidating. Whereas, you know, I, I joined a company of seventy, and it just happened to be part of that transition, and and that that was fine. Yeah. Wow. So, so let's go all the way down to the day-to-day -day and like, are there any projects or features that launched over the, you know, your time as CPO that you feel are great examples of, you know, the type of product management thinking we had, the, um, you know, inflection points for yourself of like, learning uh how to do that job uh or even anything that you think like even just go backwards from the most impactful things that you feel the team built during during the time yeah so so i i as i mentioned before i think shopify as as marketing kind of had two two kind of chapters to it i think our product had kind of two chapters to it as well chapter one of our product was you know making Shopify a lot, a lot easier for people to use. And, you know, when I joined the company, um, it, it was primarily des designed for people that kind of knew HTML or kind of liked liquid. There, there were themes in the theme store, but really a strong uh, selling point of it was this liquid templating engine. And, and so for me, I was always pushing towards how do you make it as, as simple as possible? Like, uh, I think we talked about kind of removing friction and barriers to entry. And those are the types of projects I was basically involved in for, for a long time. And, and those would be things like, um, Hey, you know, if you want to print shipping labels within Shopify, just it's two clicks instead of having to go figure out how to like set up an account with UPS and, and integrate that somehow with other Shopify. Like it used to be copying and pasting API tokens and things like that. And so for me, I was always trying to, 
make Shopify much more approachable to increase kind of the, the audience size for, for how, how big Shopify could be. And so I think that was kind of the first kind of broad chapter for it. And, and that one was always there, but sort of midway through um, my time was also, how do we think about Shopify much more broadly about instead of simply being a website with shopping cart, how do we think about being this backend for business about being, um, you know, the, the, the sort of brain of your business, the heart of your business that has information on your products, your orders, your customers, it has analytics that tie it all together, um, kind of regardless of where you end up selling. And, you know, at the, at the time it was website with shopping cart. And I think the assumption is the website with shopping cart will stick around for a long time, but sales channels, and that's what we call these kind of may, may come and go. And uh, we wanted to build kind of this more robust backend um, that served whatever sales channel. And, and that was, you know, um, point of sale. So your retail store, your online store uh, could be selling on Facebook, could be selling on Instagram, could be selling kind of anywhere. And, and that was that transition that, that I, I and my team kind of worked on really diligently um, to make sure that Shopify is, is more than just a website with shopping cart. And, and it was actually this, this commerce platform. And that was a very tricky sort of thing to do. It was, it was almost like changing the engines of a plane kind of mid-flight because we had, you know, at the time, 100,000 merchants and it, it was suddenly, you know, telling them, yeah, I know you kind of signed up for this website and shopping cart, but we're giving you this other thing called a commerce platform or a retail operating system or, or, or pick your name that we were trying to uh, come up with. And, and that was that was tricky to, to sort of, uh, to, to, to do it so that we were future-proofing the company but also not uh, losing our short-term customers. You want to touch a little bit on kind of, you were just, you were just speaking to it, but that, that tension of like product management as a science where you're doing the feedback, the, the iterative loop, you know, you're taking data, customer qualitative customer feedback, and you're continually iterating that product versus these super high conviction types of bets where you know, there was no data that was going to, that anyone was going to give you to tell you that we should be a multi-channel platform because it's one of those, like, you know, it's, it's something that people don't know they want, um, versus know they need. So, you know, how, what was your mental model of like how to balance those things or what the weighting of those types of initiatives should, should be. Like one of the big differences between junior product managers and senior product managers often ends up being. I don't know if the word is conviction or faith or, or, or frankly, just like the ability to have a strong opinion. Um, I would often find that junior product managers would probably say, I'm working on the following five things because, you know, I did some framework or I did some, some research that says this is what we should do. Whereas I think when you talk with the more senior product managers, they would say, this is what I'm doing. I know these are the right things. And Hey, if, if I'm not right, that's kind of on me. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, uh, even through, through my experience, like to grow in product management and leadership, you just, you have to take risk yeah. and that includes personal risk in your career. Like it's because the whole game of technology is hitting local maximas in decisions that have been made prior and then doing the responsible thing around, you know, that iterative loop and continuing, continuing to grow. 
Um, but there are local maximums to every initiative, right? Or to every strategy at some time frame. So uh, to continue to grow, to continue to uh, bring new products to customers and solve problems that people didn't even know, like you just have to, you have to gamble, <laughs> right? You have to have a viewpoint of the world and say like, this is my intuition. And you could probably, you know, compile that into a bunch of different quantitative and qualitative reasons why you have that intuition. But ultimately, like, you know, there's innumerable probabilities in your mind that you're uh, putting through to say, like, this is probably going to happen. Right. Yeah. And, and then you need people to be able to trust you to, to give you the resources and the time to see that through. And you sort of earn that through maybe some of the simpler product management stuff you'd done earlier on that, like, you know, and I think like, that's an interesting uh, sort of arc of, I think, product management careers, um, as I've seen them, it's just like, you accrue, you need to accrue trust because at some point you have to have, you have to say, trust me. Yeah. And then it's pretty binary then. It's like, if you have a lot of successions of like, trust me's and they work out, you know, then your intuition is worth investing more in. And, and it, that's really hard for people to hear because people want checkboxes and, <laughs> you know, and like level frameworks and all these types of things. But, um, and, you know, I, I really believe of all, of all disciplines, product management, at least over decent time periods is, is very meritocratic. The PM might actually be one of the more junior people on the team in terms of titles. So they needed to, to assume authority, even though they didn't have any technical authority over the team. And so I think the team really needed to have just a huge amount of trust in that person. And, and, and I think that that only comes one way. It's, just, it's earned. There is like a value missing in an email, in an automated email <laughs> that, uh, you know, I think that was driving you nuts because everyone knew it. It was so simple to do, but because of just like the chaos of Shopify and people needing to like, feel there's you know a prioritized roadmap and things like it just kept getting pushed um uh, i don't remember exactly what it is i don't know if you recall this is probably one of a billion things that you did but any, any like little little things like that that you felt were like you know just interesting stories of of how shopify's product ended up the way it is i i i think you touched on in, in a in a indirect way kind of how i spent my time uh, at Shopify in terms of product towards the end. And I would spend it on, I'll say broadly two things, um, which is like very high level stuff and then very low level stuff. And the middle stuff, the stuff in between, that I actually was not really that good at. So high level stuff, like making sure we have the right teams, that they're pointing in the right direction, that they are, that they're, um, you know, able to be successful and they know what success looks like, like spend a lot of time doing that. And that would be in indirect ways, like, uh, you know, organizing our internal conference to make sure that everyone internally knew what we were doing as a company. It would be spending a lot of time with, you mentioned we used to write letters to the board, but letters to the board were actually also shared internally. So this is my way of making sure everyone internally knew what the product team was, was, was doing and trying to align everyone. But then I would also spend a lot of time on like the lowest level things. And I probably drove the, the team absolutely nuts. So before any sort of project would, would be going out, there would be typically a final review with me. And, you know, I would obsess over 
like the use of a comma in a sentence. And uh, I did that because I really cared and I really felt that like all the details matter so greatly. And oftentimes these, those would be the things that like would be kind of thrown and, and pushed to like the last minute decisions. And the one that I, that drove me nuts, but it was always the last minute decision was like, how are people going to know about this thing? How are people going to hear about this feature? How are they going to turn it on? Like, what was our rollout plan, which was kind of relegated to like, ah, you know, the, the, the final details and like, just make sure we dot our I's and cross our T's. And, and, and they always assumed that the bulk of the work was, you know, building the damn thing. And frankly, at Shop, I, I don't think we ever failed building anything. Like, you know, we were not building rocket ships. Like at some point, once someone says we're going to build this thing, like we built it. But we would struggle with how does a normal human being discover this thing and then, you know, decide they want to turn it on. And, and again, I would drive people nuts by, by saying, like, don't just assume we're going to do a blog and an email about this feature and suddenly adoption is going to be through the roof. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of time on kind of those, those little details. No, I totally remember that. I have so much to say around this, which is like one at a high level, I think that's a, it was an important cultural aspect of, uh, that you injected into, into the product management culture, which is like, you know, as a user, if you see something that's just off, you're going to make an assessment of the entire system as being sort of untrustworthy, right? Like, oh, there should be a comma or a period here that's obvious, right? And it just seems like, oh, this thing is not really cared for the way that I care about my business in, in Shopify's merchants case. And so that I think was a really important thing because PMs otherwise, like they're, you know, you talked about how they measure their own success and, you know, they're thinking about shipping it on time, having a big impact, the high level metrics, all these types of things where they're just not sweating the details that much, even though we know as users that it's those details that make the difference between great and good products. So I thought that was always very, a really helpful, just so like undertone of reminder to people that like, yeah, Craig's going to talk mostly about like, you know, let's go here market size wise or strategy or whatnot, but better make sure that period's there kind of thing. Right. Right? So that was one um, on your example about like how to frame value to, to users of what we built. And, and just so everyone knows, like, this is a perfect bridge up between like, sort of where, where you started in marketing and how a lot of that thinking made its way into product, which we had posters on the wall uh, that said like, do things, tell people, which is like literally a reminder to people of like, no one cares about the algorithm. <laughs> no one cares about how scalable or resilient uh, the thing we built is. We have to tell people what this, what it does. And uh, another great example, I think was when we launched Shopify shipping, I remember this very specifically, like it was about to go out the door uh, and I think you stopped it. You stopped it because of exactly something like this, where we, what was happening with Shopify shipping. So we would allow merchants to basically buy shipping labels from all the major carriers with one click, super, uh, uh complicated infrastructure underneath to kind of route, uh, which carrier would go to find the best price and all these types of things. But we didn't do the most basic thing, which is show the merchant how much they're saving by using this thing. Right. So in the order page, we'd say buy shipping label. And what we didn't show was we knew that data, like this shipping label market price is $15. Uh, 
And, but because you're in this huge shipping buying pool of Shopify shipping, it's only $13. So show the $2, right? You save $2 by doing this. Like I remember like you actually blocking a launch uh, for <laughs> that. And people were like not happy, obviously, because of that. But, you know, in retrospect, I know because I, I have several Shopify shops, like that reminder keeps me using this product, <laughs> right? It's a very, very important aspect. And it is it's the distillation of the value proposition in many ways yeah. uh, uh, to, to something that, you know, a merchant's using every single day. So at one point we were shipping something, releasing it to the, the wild, basically the, the day or the moment the code was complete or maybe, you know, 24 hours afterwards. And then eventually, you know, we got a little bit smarter. We did some controlled A-B test rollouts and things like that. But ultimately, I actually started encouraging teams to say, hey, you know, get to code complete and then take like a week or two weeks and just like get every last detail to be, you know, as crisp and perfect and clear as possible. And and the reason that, uh, that we would do this, uh, again, was, was, was just exactly as you pointed out, because I think people notice all these details and they might make an assumption of the broader product based on sort of one mistake here, one thing that's confusing there. And so all, all these details really mattered. And, and the example I always used, which I think everyone can relate to is, you know, on the original iPhone, there was no copying and pasting. Like I, I guarantee you there was some smart person inside Apple that, uh, you know, two weeks before the iPhone was going to launch, probably said, hey, you know what, I could probably sneak that in last minute. And, and I'm sure someone equally smart at, at Apple said, no, like, if you if you do that, then it means you can't do all those other aspects of, of kind of last minute polish. And sure, it came out and there was no copy and pasting and like, cool, that comes in a second version. Um, but like, the, there is, there will always be more time to add more features. And, but if you're not careful, like the time that you allot to a project will just equal the number of features and you keep throwing in more and more features uh, to just kind of get there. And then you never really have that moment to kind of get, get your work to be, you know, something you're really proud of. Hmm. And, and, and sometimes it, there was this idea that like quality and speed were at a trade-off. I actually think that you could just do less and just do it of higher quality. Uh, so, you know, one thing there's, again, so much that we can talk about. One thing I think people would love to hear is, you know, when you took control of the, the product team, uh, it was still pretty small, but by the time you had left, it was probably over 200 PMs or, or product folk in, in, in your organization uh, and other organizations actually. But talk about that as a whole arc, like how in your mind did the function of, of product management, uh, evolve as Shopify scaled and like, what were the inflection points in your mind and how things needed to change? Yeah. So in the early stages, this sounds bizarre, but it was almost, um, justifying our existence because there were so few product managers in the company. Um, a lot of teams were not using product managers and I felt that our sort of feedback loop should be, Hey, if we're doing our job well, then people will try and pull product managers in. Like they'll say, oh, we need a product manager to run this. And they won't just be able to do it on their own. And, and I, th I think we got there pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Um, but I, I was just so conscious that like, that I didn't want to build the discipline of product management for the sake of doing so. I wanted to do it because the company would be better off 
for having that discipline in there. And so we started ramping up the, you know, the team uh, over time. Part of the challenge from growing really quickly, from adding a lot of people to the team is the fact that everyone does product differently. Like I, I'm fairly certain and, you know, I can, hey, someone can tell me I'm completely wrong, but, you know, engineers at say Microsoft and Google are not incredibly different. You know, like their, their workflow, the tools they use, the, the way they deploy, like all that stuff feels fairly standardized because, you know, computer science has been around for some time, whereas product management feels like everyone does it slightly differently. And, uh, and, and so I think the challenge we had was with adding all these people really quickly was, was trying to figure out how do we get everyone on the same page as fast as possible? and get them to know kind of the Shopify version of product management. And so I think that was tricky. And then the, the other part that was tricky was we were, you know, the team was at least doubling in size every year, if not, if not more so early on. So it was, hey, the, the, the rituals, the practices, the techniques, the tool, everything we were using and, and was being set up for a team of a certain size was starting to break when we got to be, you know, double the size, which means we were always trying to play catch up on you know, best practices, the way to, 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 to do things, the way to think about things. And, you know, I, I think it was, it was okay. Um, for me, I was always focused on making sure that the product was the best possible experience. If I had to choose one between like having a good product management discipline and having a good product, I'm going to choose having a good product. And ultimately to your point, we often had to just say like, we know it's chaotic, right? But can we all agree that getting this feature out to merchants is the most important thing, just full stop. And I think like that was the thing that helped rally the team around and, and sort of battle hardened people over, over the years to just accept that chaos and to recognize like underlying it, there is some trust. There's some organizational trust between each other and the fact that, you know, we care about each other, but this is the reality of, of technology. Anything, um, if you had to do it all over again, almost exactly the same context, would you do anything differently with regards to how the product team formed and scaled? It, it's hard to know because if you, if you change one thing, you know, who knows what the downstream effects. I mean, I'll, I'll just say broadly, one of my big concerns every year was, I know there are some things that we're doing that are standing in our way. And there are some things that we're doing that it's part of the magic of, of the company we are. And I didn't know which things I needed to change. And I didn't know which things to keep. And if you accidentally throw away the good stuff and you keep the bad stuff, like this company's, you know, disappearing fast. So, you know, as much as I would have loved for the environment to be less chaotic, like you said, there were some great products that came out of the, the, the chaos and, and, and the fact that we weren't, you know, uh, a perfectly well-oiled machine. And, and, and that was something that like, I always struggled with, um, which is, you know, from a, a pure like numbers and financial point of view, someone running the company should be able to like zoom in and say, okay, here's the, you know, take the strategy at the top level and then zoom down all the way to like the, the, every individual engineer or designer or product manager and say, okay, how exactly are they, are they connecting all the way up, you know, for, from that, that uh, high level, you know, vision, uh, mission down to tactics, down to, you know, like, in theory, that's the absolute right way to do it. And if you optimize that to a perfect degree, you lose all creativity 
And that was something I wanted to very much to make sure that we never got rid of. And there, there are products out there that are super well-known and loved, uh, Shop probably being one of the most well-known examples, that probably shouldn't have stood to that scrutiny because initially it was not connected with everything we were doing. For those unaware, Shop is basically Shopify's consumer application. It started as a very humble package tracker where after Shopify order, you can get status updates on your shipment and it would kind of aggregate those across all the different uh, businesses that you shop from. And today it's, you know, one of the biggest consumer shopping apps in the world. So, um, you know, something definitely that started as a big idea that could have went either way, but became something massive. Uh, okay. Last Shopify question, because there's some other things I want to ask you before, before we close. Uh, and it may be shop, but the question is, across your entire arc, marketing and product, what are you most proud of at Shopify, of the work you did? One thing. Um, I mean, this sounds actually probably strange to say and to admit. Um, I'd say it's just the people I worked with um, and the, the fun we had and the challenges we went through Again, it, it sounds bizarre. I remember at one point uh, early on in my career, uh, the assumption was I'm I'm just going to be that guy that, like sits in front of a computer all day that like never interacts with humans. Like I wasn't the I wasn't the stereotypical person you think would be managing or leading large teams. I was very much the individual contributor. Um, and, and I think over time, um, you know, I went from hey it was great when I built something to hey it was great when I told others to build something. And then I think I got to this point where I am in my life now where I actually love working with really smart people and seeing them succeed. And like nothing makes me happier than that. You know, I, I've done my thing. I, I'm very proud of everything I built and all the work we did. But now I'm just so proud to like work with others and see, see them and see what they're able to do. So I, I don't think there's one specific like Shopify thing. That's great. Thank you, Craig. Uh, great transition now. What are you doing now? What are you doing? <laughs> it's been, uh, you know, it's been six months, I'd say, roughly, since you moved on from Shopify. So I've been spending a lot more time with family, which is great. Um, the uh, the usual uh, thing is, you know, as soon as you leave, you go and start something up again. And frankly, I, I kind of made this conscious decision that um, at least I'm done working for someone else. I'm not going to ever have another boss again in my life. And I feel pretty confident that that's the right decision. Again, I love working for Toby. Um, but like, I think after him, like, I just don't think I want to work for someone. And I'm not quite sure I want to start my own thing right now. Um, so for the past while, I have been helping uh, a few companies out that like, I like the founder, I like the company, I like the vision. And, and, you know, I, I, I jokingly said this on Twitter a couple months ago where I said, Hey, look, instead of the next Shopify, I'm, I'm more interested in making 10 more. And, and frankly, I think it's because I really think, um, the world needs more, uh, more of these companies, uh, and Canada can support more than one every decade. Uh, and so I think Shopify is going to be there for a long time. And I think there should be a whole bunch more uh, that can add it, uh, add to it. Yeah. Taking from your Twitter, you kind of, uh, went public and said that you're really interested in companies that are in three areas. They're helping create and empower more entrepreneurs, similar to Shopify. 
Uh, number two, they're Canadian companies. And the third is they fight climate change. Uh, so I think everyone understands, you know, why that's important to you and, and us all. Uh, what is your what is your take on on climate change? So my, my last year at ShopEye was 2020 um, during the onset of the pandemic. And um, I remember when it first really started uh, hitting everyone that this was not a problem that was going to be, you know, uh, specific to just one or two areas in the world, that this was going to become a global problem. And we started shutting down offices and, and people started talking about this. I remember one night just like writing this kind of long stream of conscious document. Um, and I didn't even know who I was writing it to or what the point of it was when I started. It was just like observations and extrapolations and thoughts as to like COVID and where things were going. And it, uh, it ended up being, I think, four, four or five pages. Um, and I eventually ended up sharing an edited version of that with the company. Um, but the interesting thing about this, and the reason I mentioned this, and, and like it was not only hey, here's here's what I think is happening, but it's here's how I think the company should respond to COVID. Because I also said, hey, I'd love for this to be a short-term thing, but I think this is actually going to drag on for a long time uh, until everyone's vaccinated, uh, which is going to take a long time. This is going to be a clear and present problem. Um, but the original title for that document was actually WW COVID, and I, I wrote that because in my mind I was kind of trying to draw the, the parallels between, uh, you know, World War I and, and what we were starting to see with, with COVID in that it was a, a kind of global problem that required countries to do things they didn't normally do and, and to react in a big way and to mobilize. And I also in the back of my mind said, cool, eventually like this war might be over. Um, but in the back of my mind, I thought, okay, well then if that's, this is World War I, what's World War II of this, uh, century and in my mind that's called climate change i think climate change like we already know it we see it like <laughs> texas is not supposed to have ice storms you know california is not supposed to be on fire like we, we already know it's there it's just we, we don't have the like political will um and the stamina to actually do things about it and, and i think people are starting to wake up to it more and more now I actually think there's a big risk, by the way, now as people say, finally, COVID's over. Let's all get on jet planes and fly around the world and like party and, and enjoy ourselves to actually say, hey, you know, maybe we should kind of curb some of that, those activities again, uh, you know, to just save humanity. Um, but uh, 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 like I, I, I do see this as being probably the defining challenge of our time. And, and I think everyone kind of would acknowledge it. I, I think few people probably have the ability to, to solve it. And I think the big problems are the ones that I'm after now. Like I, I'm, I'm literally signing myself up to fail. Well, I, uh, you know, as a citizen of earth, I'm, I'm happy you're putting your problem solving brain towards that. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's an amazing thing. Thank you. Well, I think this is a great place to, to wrap up Craig, you know, thank you for joining and sharing your story and insight with us. Uh, I'd love to ask you one final question before we go. And you can choose to provide as much or as little context to the answer as you want. Uh, and the question is, what's the single most important mental model or principle you have for life, work, or both? I, I would say um, really understand the goal 
I think people jump to tactics so quickly and, and really focusing on like the why I think there's some, someone much smarter than I did talked about like the five whys or something like there's some concept around that, that I don't quite know, but um, really think about problems deeply and understand what the goal of something is before you jump into doing that. Cause people love to just jump into tactics. And if you really understand the goal deeply, then you'll, it'll help with feedback loops. It'll help you find the quickest way there. It will, it will uh, allow you to do all these things that you really want to do. And, and I don't know if there's a term for this, but I would just say, start with like really understanding what the goal is, what the why is behind things and, uh, and, and proceeding from there, not, not working backwards. That's awesome. Thank you, Craig. And to everyone who's listening, we'll see you next time.